Rathbone's Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. Hello and welcome to the Rathbones Look Forward series. I'm Andrea Catherwood. This is our third series now and we're continuing to focus on the future of our rapidly changing world. And we're going to begin this new season of podcasts by looking at the future of morality. I'm joined by award-winning historian, author and broadcaster Tom Holland. His latest book, Dominion, The Making of a Western Mind, argues that Christianity's impact is not confined to churches, but can be seen everywhere in the West, in science, in gay rights, even in atheism. Tom, welcome. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, Before we talk about the impact of of Christianity elsewhere, I was struck by the fact that this book is something of a discovery for you personally as well. And I'd like to go back a little bit and have you talk to me about your relationship with the church as a child, how you grew up with it. Well, my my father, I have no idea what he believes or thinks um absolute closed book but my mother was um is a a committed anglican so i went to church i sang in the choir went to sunday school all that kind of business um and i was interested in the bible to the degree that it had kind of interesting violent stories in it so i was very into pharaoh being wiped out by the red sea or generals having tent pegs hammered through their heads that kind of thing but by and large, what I really liked were even more violent subjects, so dinosaurs to begin with, um, and then uh, the Roman army. And if you'd asked me, you know, whose side were you on, Pontius Pilate or Jesus, I would absolutely have said Pontius Pilate, because <laughs> Pontius Pilate was a kind of figure of glamour. He had the purple and the, the eagles and the soldiers. And so whether it was due to that or not, I'm not sure, but I kind of grew up thinking, um, uh, buying into what I now think of as the Enlightenment myth, the idea that um, there were there was kind of rationalism and light in the classical world, and then this age of superstition and darkness descended with Christianity, and then magically the light switch goes on with the Enlightenment, uh, and that I was the heir of that. But um, I've wrote Dominion essentially because I come to realise that that's a myth and that whenever I try and trace the thread back of my values and I think the values that that are held generally in in Western society, they lead way back past the 18th century and they generally lead not to classical antiquity but to to the Christian world. So let's talk a little bit about how the Christian world has shaped our world today then. But your book really argues that Christianity, it's not its not about whether or not God exists. It's not about whether Christianity is a good or a bad thing. Well, um, for Christians, obviously it is. <laughs> and, and for atheists, I mean, of course, this does matter very much. But I think purely as, as a sub- subject of historical, I think, kind of observation, it, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not, whether God exists or not. But that central idea of Christianity, the belief that Jesus, uh, the son of one God of the Jews, was tortured on a cross, that is something that we now take as, whether or not we think it's a historical fact, certainly something that's not surprising to us. But at the time, that really was a a sort of a scandalous thought. Yeah, I I think that... um 
if you want a single image that mm. sums up the, the scale and the seismic quality of the revolution that the coming of Christianity represents, then the cross, which is the, the kind of the emblematic symbol of Christianity, is, is the best one that you have. And the reason for that is that, as you say, uh, for us, whether you're Christian or not, the image of the cross generally has very positive connotations. If you're lying injured and a van pulls up and it's got a, a red cross on it, you know, you're, you're pleased to see it. Whereas in the Roman world, the world into which uh, Jesus is born, the cross symbolizes the absolute opposite of what it symbolizes for us. To the Romans, the cross is an emblem of their power and their absolute right to torture to death anyone who opposes them. And specifically, the cross is designed not just to punish, but to humiliate. It's the most excruciating form of death imaginable. You can be suspended anywhere. You can have nails driven through. You can be impaled. You can be hung upside down, whatever. You're unable to fend away the birds as they try and, uh, and attack your, your eyes or your genitals. But in a way, what makes it even worse by the standards of the age is that this suffering is public. So your, your, your death agonies are visible to a gawping and perhaps jeering audience. And it's that that for the Romans made it, above all, the perfect death to inflict on slaves. So the notion that someone who had suffered this fate had ascended into heaven was in some strange sense a part not just of any god but the god who had according to the jews had fashioned the entire cosmos as paul says the first person who who writes about this that we have says that to the jews this is a stumbling block and uh, and to everyone else particularly to the romans it's insanity and so it is because what christianity is arguing is that the weak have a, a kind of power over the strong that the powerless can triumph over the powerful and this is a notion that i think lies at the heart of what gives the west its morality now but it but we have to understand how contingent it is and how by the standards of an earlier age how radical indeed mm. ludicrous it is I was interested that uh, while you were researching this book, you actually went to Iraq to visit the, the beleaguered uh, Yazidis, a religious minority that's really been condemned by the uh, Islamic State as devil worshippers. And they have actually themselves had probably some of the worst ethnic cleansing visited on them. How did that fit into your views well, it's, of Christianity? Uh, well, oddly, last night I went to Westminster Abbey where a choir of Yazidi girls had, had been brought over and they looked exactly like kind of teenagers on a, on a coach going to Disney World or something. You, you would not have thought that these five of them had been enslaved by um, ISIS captors for five years. They'd lost their, essentially lost their childhood to a process of, of, of mass rape. And to look at them, you, you just kind of stabbed you through the heart. But the fact that it stabbed me through the heart and the fact that when I actually went to Sinjar, their hometown, which had been captured by ISIS in 2014, I visited just after it had been retaken by Kurdish militia, that not only had, had, had these girls been abducted from there and enslaved, but men had been crucified in the town. And that likewise, because I'm sufficiently culturally Christian, that that seemed to me a horrifying thing that 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 people in the 21st century could be using the cross as an emblem of power, exactly as the Romans had done. I, I found this very, very dislocating in a way that perhaps I wouldn't have done if I just sat and read about it in libraries, because what ISIS did in crucifying and killing men and enslaving girls, you know, often as, as young as 10, 
that was what the Romans did. That was par for the course. If you resisted, that's that was your fate. And so going there in to, to Sinjar, I had to ask myself, well, what's wrong with, with inflicting this kind of torture on your enemies? And, you know, last night um, watching these, these Yazidi girls sing, again, I have to ask, well, why did I find the idea of them having been enslaved and raped for, for five years so appalling? Because that was the fate of slaves in Roman households. Mm-hmm. So let's broaden it out and look at some of the, the key concepts that you think that are distinct to the Christian civilization. Okay, I think that there are uh, two core concepts that um, have been fundamental to Christian teaching. One of them, which is kind of fed by many different streams, is the idea that, um, as Paul says, there is no Jew or Greek, there is no man or woman, there is no slave or free. This idea that there is a, a kind of inherent dignity that all human beings share. And in in Paul's case, when he says this, he, of course, is a Jew. So he's drawing on the inheritance of, of, of um, Jewish scripture and specifically Genesis, where man and woman is created in the image of God, which is gives to humans an amazingly dignified status. But there are other elements that feed this idea of a kind of universalism, one of which is the Greek Stoic notions, Stoic philosophers, who argue that the divine is manifest in the entire universe and therefore is manifest within human beings. And the Stoics give to this spark of the divine that exists within every human being the, 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 the word synodesis, which we could legitimately translate as conscience. And Paul, when he's trying to say that the law of God, which was written on tablets of stone and given to Moses, that covenant now there is a new covenant and the new law is written on the heart and he reaches for this word synodesis to describe it and so the idea of conscience as something that is universally human that we all share that you look into your heart and there it is this is something that that ultimately derives from the stoics and then of course you have the propaganda of rome itself the empire into which paul and indeed jesus are born this vast sprawling superpower spreading from the Atlantic right into the the desert sands of the Middle East and the doctrine of Rome the propaganda of Rome is that its power is universal it is sine fine without limit Um, of course that's not actually true but there's a swirl of kind of universalist ideas and Christianity in a way draws on all these various elements and enshrines them in a form that will prove to be the most successful the most culturally successful form of universalism ever devised The second aspect, I think, that is transformative and radical is more distinct to Christianity, although, again, it's drawing on the inheritance of Hebrew scripture. And that's the thing that's manifest in the the crucifixion, the idea that the weak will triumph over the strong. And by extension, the, the kind of radical idea as it evolves over the course of Christian history, that the beggar, the leper, the criminal, in a sense, may be closer to God than the powerful. And this generates a kind of nagging anxiety in the back of the minds of of the wealthy and the strong and the powerful that remains with us to this day. That's fascinating. And it takes me on to this idea that there is a central paradox, really, at the heart of Christianity. The idea that Christianity sort of simultaneously inspires us to conquer the whole world. And yet there is also that anxiety that doing so is sort of betraying the idea of the crucifixion. Yes, I, I, I think that, you know, I increasingly come to think that, that Christianity and therefore the West, which I think is kind of saturated in Christian assumptions, that it's, it's, it's fueled by paradox almost. 
think in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, one of the spaceships is kind of fueled by a paradox generator. And in a way, that's what Christianity is. And you're absolutely right that, of course, Christianity has at its heart this this um, anti-imperial symbol. Jesus tells you know, his disciples to put up their swords. He willingly goes to, to, to his death. He, he does not go down fighting. Um, and yet... Christianity over the course of 2,000 years has become the most dominant, the most hegemonic way of explaining what humanity's relationship to the world should be that has ever been. So the relationship between Christianity's inordinate power and the value that it simultaneously gives to those who do not have power has indeed generated all all kinds of of paradoxes and tensions. And it has also been used to justify colonialism and and expansion, particularly from Western countries, European countries. Yes, um, and it's, it's a kind of tension that is there right from the very, very beginning. So going again, going back to Paul, for you know, the first person who's writing about uh, Christ as Saviour, maybe within two decades of, of the crucifixion. And in his letter to the Galatians, as I mentioned before, this key phrase, there is no dual Greek, universalist, ecumenical. Who would object to that? Well, of course, actually, Jews object to it. Jews object to the idea that their distinctiveness might be dissolved into what they see as a kind of universalist mush. And so over the course of, of Christian history, relations between Christians and Jews have always been the shadow that, 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 that puts Christian ideals into a certain measure of darkness. And again, likewise, when faced with people who Christians come to call pagans, what should the relationship of Christian power be to these people? What should the relationship of Christian power be to people who do not accept Christianity? Christianity. And again, these generate all kinds of complex responses. So you can argue, as people have done, that you should turn the other cheek as a Christian and, and leave people well, who are not Christian well alone. Equally, you can push it to the opposite extreme and say that they should be converted at the point of a sword. And both points of view can be argued. But it's both points of view are generated by this kind of tension. Another paradox that, that you talk about in the book is the way that Christianity actually inspired slave traders and indeed the conquerors of of the americas but at the same time people who were opposed to slavery and the abolitionists obviously saw the darker side of those conquests again it's two paradoxes and both relying heavily on christian values well i i think that christianity does make attitudes to slavery vastly more problematic than they had been in in the pre-Christian world. I mean, it's hard to overemphasize the degree to which slavery was hardwired into every aspect of Roman life. Mm. People in their millions were enslaved and and slaves were, were there to be used, absolutely. So the fact that Christ suffers the death of a slave, it generates psychic disquiet in the heart of a number of Roman slave owners. And you do get you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a Christian bishop in the fourth century, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, who does go so far as to argue not just that you should be kinder to your slaves as a Christian master, but that slavery itself as an institution is, is morally repellent and offensive to God because Christ had suffered the death of a slave. But this is, this is such a kind of seen as being such a lunatic position that it never really gets any traction. And Christians are, think of slavery as, as an evil, but as they do, you know, as they think of, of sickness or poverty as an evil, it's always going to pour always with you, Jesus said. You know, by extension, slaves are always with you is the kind of assumption. And so going into, um, into the modern period, first with the Spanish and then with the English in the, in the New World, 
slave owners do try and rustle up a Christian justification for slavery that 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 by enslaving people from benighted regions of the earth uh, and and gracing them with the benefits of the gospel they're somehow doing them a favor but this becomes increasingly problematic particularly in the Protestant world of of the Caribbean and and North America because increasingly because the slaves who are who are being taken to the colonies and and the plantations are African, slavery comes to be racialized. That that had not previously been uh, the case, but the growing sense that Africans distinctively are being enslaved starts to create real problems because that really is contrary to the fundamental Christian notion that that all men are created equal. And so, f- from the beginning of the end of the seventeenth century, you start to get radical Protestants who read the Bible. And notoriously in the Bible, there is no prescription against slavery. Nowhere does it say slavery should be abolished. There isn't, there, you know, there's nothing that says that. But there are Protestants who start to read it and they have an understanding of how the Spirit illumines Scripture that enables them to see things written in the text that is not necessarily there. And so as they read it, they start to say, okay, it doesn't say in the Bible that slavery should be abolished, but my understanding of the Spirit, which is enlightening my understanding of what is written down here, is enabling me to see that slavery is a moral offence. And this goes over the course of a century from being kind of a mad minority position to becoming so mainstream that people start to send in mass petitions to parliament. There are agitation, there are kind of public demonstrations. Um, And essentially the British government ends up being backed by public pressure into saying that they they will abolish slavery. But it's you know, it's it's a very, very long and winding road. I wonder then, do you think that we would have got to the position that we are in where there is a, a, you know, a universal belief in human rights if it weren't for Christianity? No. Is that too big a leap? I, I mean, the, the, the notion of Christian rights is as theological as the, the notion that the Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of, of the Father. What are human rights? I mean, they, they, you know, they're absolute abstractions. People who, who say they're self-evident, they're not remotely self-evident. They're, they're, they're an absolute abstraction. And they are a very culturally specific development of Christian theology. So the, the, the notion of Christian rights emerges in the 12th century with lawyers who are trying to, because Christianity, unlike Judaism or, or Islam, does not have a great body of law that is believed to come directly from God. So you need to kind of construct a body of law that is appropriate to God's wishes. And so this is what the lawyers are doing. And they have an understanding from the New Testament that um, God uh, wants the rich to give to the poor. And these lawyers in the 12th century thereby start to construct the idea that, well, if, if, if the rich are obliged to give to the poor, then the poor have a right to certain things. They have a right to food. They have a right to shelter. They have a right to clothing. Um, and over the course of the Middle Ages, this notion becomes more and more refined so that by the time that the Spanish go to um, the New World, whereas in, in, in Protestant North America, it's the idea of the spirit that uh, inspires people to uh, reject the, the, the dictates of a slave society in in uh, in the Spanish New World, it's the idea of of, of rights, and and you get Franciscans and you get Dominicans who 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 argue against what the Spanish are doing in terms of the fact that the Indians, the natives in in, in South America, they have rights. And when in the early nineteenth century, the British, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese are trying to construct 
um, a framework of law that both Catholics and Protestants can accept. It's constructed by fusing the Catholic tradition of human rights with the Protestant idea that you know, you just know deep in your heart that slavery is wrong and fuses it. And and with this idea of, of a, a kind of body of international law that although absolutely expressive of these two Christian theological traditions is broadcast and publicised as being somehow neutral and therefore universal. What then happens in the 19th century, the great era of European expansion, is that Europeans are able to promote these ideas, not as Christian, but as as universal, as something that everybody across the world not only can but should accept. Now, I want to bring you on to the, the, one of the major events of uh, the 20th century, the Second World War, particularly the Holocaust, because you write about that in the book and the idea that it changes our idea of what evil is. We don't need a myth anymore of the devil or of hell because we've got Hitler and we've got Auschwitz. Do, do you believe that that war affected our sense of, of morality and indeed of religious belief? I think it was um, a convulsive and seismic business for our morality and I think that we today live amid the kind of aftershocks of that and the reason why it was so seismic is that the nazis were the first regime since constantine the roman emperor converted to christianity that overtly sought to trample down christian fundamentals so we i mentioned the two great fundamentals of christianity the idea that um that all human beings are created equally in the image of God. In other words, that there is no Jew or Greek. And um, the idea that the weak have a kind of moral purchase on the strong. And the Nazis decisively repudiated both those ideals. And I think that the shock of that in the after, aftermath of the Nazis' defeat was so profound that, that in a way, if we want to know what is, what is good, you're right, we, do, you know, we don't need the Bible anymore. We don't need the church. We don't need the figure of Jesus. Because... We have the example of the Nazis and we have the figure of Hitler. And so we are, you know, if we want to know what is what is the right thing to do, we ask what would the Nazis have done? And we do the opposite. We've talked a lot about Christianity in, in the past tense, but I'd like to talk about Christianity today now um, and about Donald Trump, because he very much casts himself as a, a standard bearer for Christian values. And, and you talk about this. He receives a lot of support from white evangelical Christians. And yet this is a man whose behaviour is at times race-baiting, xenophobic, lying, repeatedly accused of sexual assault. Not what most of us would consider Christian. And yet he is so popular amongst evangelicals. Where does this take Christianity in America? I, I, whether he's personally popular among evangelicals, I doubt. They I think there's a him, slight kind of element of holding the nose and, mm. and voting for him. Mm. And the reason why they do that is, I think, a complex one and goes back quite far into um, in, in, into recent uh, American history. And it goes back specifically, I think, to the last great upsurge of Christianity in a way devotional Christianity that, that, that transformed American society. And that was in the 50s with the civil rights movement. And Martin Luther King... Is you know he's he's a Baptist preacher um, and he summons white Americans to a sense of brotherhood with black Americans 
as a Christian, as a Christian preacher. He, he does it in the name of love and he calls Jesus an extremist for love and that's how he casts himself. And the success and the impact of the civil rights movement and the moral heft that it, it, it has feeds in the 60s into um, other groups of, of marginalised people, likewise invoking similar arguments, so gay people, um, feminists. What then happens is that the arguments made by gay people and by feminists unlike the arguments made by Martin Luther King, start to splinter from um, Christian practice as it had been understood in, in, in Protestant America for many, many centuries. And although you know, feminists or gay rights protesters and evangelical Protestants in, in Baptist churches are both drawing for their moral assumptions on the same seedbed of Protestant history in America... They start to diverge, and as is always the way when, when you get rival pe- groups of people who feel themselves ideologically divided, the no-man's land widens and widens and widens. So what you have in America now are, are two groups of people, evangelical Christians, progressives, whatever you want to call them, who feel that they are fundamentally different, that they're fundamentally ideologically opposed. And so that's why you, you get evangelicals who feel that the state of crisis that Christian America is in requires them to hold their nose and vote even for someone like Donald Trump. But I think the paradox of this situation is that actually progressives are as deeply, uh, you know, their assumptions are as deeply rooted in, 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 in this Christian seedbed of theology and history and morality as, as the, the, the overtly devotional Christians. When you look at this and look, look forward to the future of morality and Christianity in America, do you see any way of these two things coming together? I don't know. I mean, I th- it seems very difficult at the moment because the, uh, the, the trenches are, 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 are so furiously defended on both sides. And I think that it, it's indisputably the case that at the moment we are living, you know, it's even clearer in Europe than it is in America, but it's, it's happening in America as well, that actually the habit of familiarity with the Bible with Christian teachings is starting to fade among large, large sectors of the population. And Christianity kind of hangs in the air like dust particles. And we breathe them in even when we don't realise that we're breathing them in. But whether those dust particles will continue to linger in quite the same degree if Christianity in in its kind of doctrinal sense, in its, its devotional sense, continues to retreat, I don't know. And what then happens is is kind of, a, you know, an open question. You can see all kinds of alternative possibilities. Mm. And of course, the Catholic Church has also been damaged. Its moral authority has been damaged by the sexual abuse scandals. We're in a situation now where Pope Francis may well retire um, and may well be replaced by somebody who's more conservative. He's done quite a lot to attempt to liberalise the Catholic Church. Do you think that a more conservative Pope... What kind of impact would that have on on the future of the Catholic Church? Well, um, the the Catholic Church, as it has ever been pretty much since the beginning, is torn between rival impulses. And and one of those impulses is that you need secure anchorage. You need to to, to anchor the present to the certainties of the past, um, the the great magisterium, the corpus of, of, of Christian inheritance. And that is that is the kind of conservative tradition within within the Catholic Church. But equally, the idea that the spirit can illumine God's people, that Christians are collectively 
uh, embarked on a pilgrimage through time. That also is a part, have always been a part of, of, of Catholic teaching. And so the, the issue within not just the Catholic Church, but within uh, Christianity generally, every faction, is how you negotiate those two impulses. Do you, as Pentecostalists, you know, ecstatically do, essentially jettison tradition and open yourself up to the ecstasy of possession by the Spirit? Or do you, as as Benedict, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, the retired Pope, did, do, you, do you put an absolute premium on the tradition? And I think it's inevitable in an institution like the papacy that perhaps you're, you're always going to have a, a yo-yoing between those two positions. Here in the UK, um, it's often considered that the, the church is in a kind of terminal decline. And yet there are still... 26 bishops who, who sit in the House of Lords. It's one of the few places in the world where we have we, we have With religious Iran. leaders who've got... Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. Iran and Britain. Power. Exactly. And again, we've got state-funded uh, church schools. Are we more bound by these structures here in the UK than we think? I think it reflects, you know, the, 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 the church of England, the, the bishops in, in the House of Lords is a kind of wonderful example. Um, and, and the temptation might be to say that this is kind of like an appendix or something. This is some weird, you know, or the coccyx. This is a, you know, <laughs> the traces of a, a tail that lingers on in the human skeleton. I think that it is emblematic of something that is evident when you look at British history, when you look at, at British morality, when you look at British society, which is that when we say or do things, we are powerfully affected by centuries, indeed millennia, of a distinctive cultural and religious inheritance that goes by the name of Christianity. And so the presence of the bishops in the Church of England, and indeed the fact that we have church schools, reminds us of the fact that education in this country, by and large, for most of its span, was a Christian education. It was organized by the church. And one of the reasons, I think, why uh, organized Christianity has has faded in this country is that, in a sense, it's been nationalized. The things that the church did, organizing hospitals, organizing schools, providing charity, providing poor relief, now it's been taken over the state. What role does the church have? And yet we do see that anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are on the rise throughout Europe. Hate crime is also on the rise it's quite difficult to combat that, isn't it, when actually even our own political system, the charge is constantly being levelled at it, that there is inherent both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism within it. Well, this goes back to the problem that, that Christians have always had. Um, how, how, what should the proper relationship be to, towards those who, who reject the teachings of Christianity? So uh, you know, the history of Christian anti-Semitism is terrible and, and 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 notorious and the history of 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 christendom's fights with the house of islam likewise um you know every, everyone has heard of the crusades um so this is again you know if you emphasize schools and hospitals you also have to emphasize that this also you know this this legacy is also a part of of, of what m- makes us what we are but i think that the relationship let's say, of, of, of Jews and, and, and Muslims to um, the distinctive form that Western Christianity has taken over the, over the centuries is a complex one. And the reason for that is that rather like the Western powers have been very successful in exporting fundamentally Christian concepts like human rights around the world by pretending that it's universal, so also does the kind of the, the, the foundation of Western multiculturalism, the idea that there is a secular space and that there are things called religions that exist on the margins of the secular. 
this is publicised and marketed as being somehow neutral, that the secular state provides neutrality between Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, whatever. But it doesn't, because the model of the secular, the idea that there are things called religions, again, these are not culturally neutral concepts. These are ideas that are deeply rooted in the past of, of Christian history and Christian theology. And what, what has happened over the course of the past 200 years is that those people who want to become citizens of Western states, who are not Christian, essentially have to reconfigure how they understand themselves. So the Jews are the, are the first people who have to undergo this process. In the aftermath of the French Revolution, when um, anyone can be a citoyen of, you know, this is something to open to everyone in France, but there is a requirement imposed on the Jews of France that they have to stop identifying themselves as they always had done as a people, as the people of Israel. Now they have to think of themselves as belonging to something called Judaism, which is an entirely Christian formulation. Christians coin this word Judaismos, Judaism, in the second century. No Jew ever uses this word because Jews don't think of themselves as belonging to something called a religion. This is a Christian idea. But over the course of the 19th century, that's what they have to do. And so you see Reform Judaism, Orthodox um, Judaism started emerging as ways to try and kind of construct a uh, uh, a form of, of 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 faith and of practice that can correspond to what Christians think they should be occupying, and now um, in the post-war years in 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 the West, with the coming of Muslims, similar pressure on them. They have to stop thinking of themselves as they traditionally had always done since the beginnings of Islam, as belonging to an Ummah, to a global community, and they have to start thinking of themselves as British or French or German citizens who happen to practice a religion that is called Islam. And again, you can see that there are huge tensions around this and a huge part of, of, of what has you know, been inspiring people, for instance, to go to Syria is this kind of inchoate sense, I think they feel, that actually the secular state in Europe is not remotely neutral, that it's, it's, it's forcing them into a template that ultimately is a Christian one. Let's talk a little about the future of Christianity in the West, because we can see that the popularity of the church is exploding in parts of China, in parts of Africa, while in England it's on the wane. We've talked about how much we have been shaped by Christianity. So I wonder, what is the effect on the Western mind of the decline in the obvious trappings of Christian faith and practice? Well, I mean, I mean that, is, that is the huge question. And the figure who, who puts all this <laughs> in his shadow is the, the German philosopher Nietzsche, who at the end of the 19th century essentially mocked atheists who he felt were, were essentially Christian communists or socialists or humanists who basically clung to Christian theological assumptions even as they tried to deny God. And he, he had a kind of wonderful metaphor for this. Um, he, he describes um, God as, as a corpse. God is dead. We have murdered God. But his corpse is so enormous that it's lying in this cave and its shadow will you know, exist for many, many centuries. It will take many, many centuries for the corpse to rot. Now, we know what Nietzsche didn't, where this idea would lead in the kind of very brutal short term. It would lead to Nazism, who would very, you know, try and dispose of the corpse of God altogether. Today, when we, we looked at the Nazis as the kind of you know, people to avoid, um, in a sense, we are looking at that, that corpse of God. We're looking at the corpse of, of, of Christian assumptions. Now, 
how long will, will, will that work? I think we're starting to see now m many of the events of the past years that the just telling people if they don't subscribe to certain doctrines or notions that they're Nazis, the impact of that is starting to wear off. And so then the question starts to be asked, well, if, if you want to encourage people to hold to fundamentally Christian notions, such as the fact that the strong should have a duty of care to the weak, such as the, the idea that, that we are all human, that every human being has an inherent dignity, how are you going to express this? What, what kind of justification for this are you going to be able to find? Because traditionally, it was always theological. You know, you, would, you had the Bible, you had the example of Jesus, you had the, the, the inheritance of Christian teaching to draw on. Now that we don't have that, what, what inheritance do we have? And I think that just saying, well, if you, you, know, if you don't stick to this, then you're, then you're a Nazi, the power of that is starting to fade. So I can see various alternatives. One is that we, we kind of drift towards a society in which um, divisions between different peoples come to be enshrined. The idea that Jews and Greeks are different comes to be re-enshrined. Um, we start to lose our sense of responsibility towards the weak. We start to turn our backs on, on, on the ideals of a kind of universalism. We start to repudiate the idea that there are human rights because um, the roots of these concepts are no longer being watered. And do you or, think that that isn't, or, you know, is, it, or, does, does that necessarily have to happen? No, I don't, think it, I don't think it does have. So that's one option. That's mm -hmm. the kind of, from my perspective, the darker option. Yes. The other is that um, these ideas are so sufficiently kind of a part of the, the air that we breathe in. It's kind of the, the water that we as goldfish swim in that they will just always be there. Um, so in a sense, we, you know, we've, we've kind of emancipated ourselves from the, the superstition and nonsense of religion. And now we, we have this inheritance and we've kind of purged it of, of, of theology and God. And, and, and it will just kind of stay because it's so obviously right. That's a, it seems to me a kind of more optimistic um, I, I, and I think a slightly heroically optimistic take. I think the likelihood is it will be a, mi a mixture of both of those. Unless, of course, the third option which is that people start to um, worry about what is happening and actually start to, that the, the, there is a recovery in institutional Christianity in the West, which I think is also a possibility. Do you? I mean, it's interesting, just looking at England, you know, there are, tw well, I think, about 25 churches closing every year and there are evangelical churches starting up um, aimed at trying to bring in younger people. I know that there's a, apparently a, a temporary helter-skelter in Norwich Cathedral and yeah. various other things. There's the Alpha Course. Um, it's the famous example of that. Yeah. yeah. Are these ways to make the church more relevant? Do you see any of this working? Is is this how you would like to see the church progressing? Well, I, I, I think that Christianity is an evangelical religion. Christianity is a religion that has always felt that there are truths that are so powerful and so um, important that those who believe in them want to spread them and this is still absolutely manifest in the world now as it was in the age of Paul as you mentioned the kind of incredible growth of Christianity in Asia and even more strikingly I think in Africa where over the, the second half of the 20th century Christianity spread to a degree that it hadn't done since the, the, the early Middle Ages in Europe so that power is still very much manifest one of the, the issues in, in Europe is, I think, that liberalism, secularism, humanism, whatever you want to call it, is a form of Christianity. I mean, it's a kind of logical endpoint of, of trends, I think, particularly within Protestant Christianity. It's Christianity without Christ, essentially. The problem, I think, with it is that it lacks the colour, the drama, 
the sense of ritual. The costumes. So, so um, the humanists yesterday were tweeting about how, do you want to have a naming ceremony? We will host a naming ceremony. All your, 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 your family can gather and we'll have a ceremony and a ritual that, that, that you can join and feel that you know, your child is being brought into society. It sounds amazingly like baptism yep. to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, Christianity, looking at it from a purely Darwinian point of view, why has Christianity been so successful? It obviously feeds needs and desires and impulses within human beings that we all continue to have. And so if there's a feeling that the values that derive from Christianity, and not just the values, but kind of the rituals and the underpinnings, are starting to fade and collapse i can imagine that people might start to think well should we go back to 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 the source of this should we go back to ground zero of this and 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 see see what's there tom if we look at the world today it's obviously a much more complex place than it was in biblical times right and wrong for example can be challenged in ways that we couldn't have anticipated then you know we can't we can see sometimes the international impact of our actions in a way that you could never have anticipated or technological advances really happen faster than our ability to work out what's right and wrong. Does that change our morality? Well, Christianity has always been fueled by technological change. Paul's ability to, to um, spread his gospel is absolutely dependent on the physical infrastructure provided by Roman shipping lanes and roads. And then with the Reformation, uh, Luther is able to bring the, uh, the the kind of great massive structure of medieval Christianity part crashing down because he is able to make himself heard because he's kind of churning out. Print a Bible. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Print, yep. um, I mean, I think, we, you know, we see it again now with the Internet that it, clearly the Internet has massively fueled the spread of um, Pentecostalism in particular and evangelical Christianity into areas where it hadn't existed before. So in, in, in Catholic South America, you know, in China as well and things. And I think actually those who have most dramatically exploited um, the the um, potential of the Internet, something invented originally by the U.S. military, of course, are um, Islamic terrorists and and. and ISIS would not exist without uh, their ability to, to to use the internet to its own ends. So it's kind of you know it's 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 a, a fascinating constant in history that people who reject the world will always use the inventions within the world to propagate it. But I do think that that looking to the future of of morality, perhaps specifically to to, to the future of, of of Jewish and Christian ideas about what humans are, the idea that they're created in the image of God, which has always been such a, a powerful constant, that one of the developments in technology which may come to threaten that is the potential that the very wealthy w- will increasingly have to enhance their bodies, their minds, to, to, to boost their status as human beings. And I don't think it's venturing too far into the realms of science fiction to imagine that a time may come where, you know, if there aren't controls on this, if there isn't kind of certain sense of self-regulation about this by the very, very wealthy, that you may start to get people who no longer classify as, as homo sapiens. And what then what would they be? What would their relationship be to humans supposedly created in the image of God? And and that really would be a kind of fundamental reversal of, of Jewish and Christian moral assumptions. Let's finish, if we can, on, on a personal level. I wonder how writing this book has changed your thoughts and your faith. I kind of lost my faith, I should think, by the time I was kind of 
12 or 13 kind of faded on puberty <laughs> um but it, and it was kind of like a dimmer switch slowly being turned off um and throughout my 20s and 30s I, I had absolutely no you know I just wasn't really very interested in it and as I say I kind of identified with the enlightenment and identified in antiquity with particularly with the Greeks but I've written this book as a result of reflections really of 20 years because writing about trying to get in the minds of the Romans of the the Greeks of the the Persians these ancient peoples I found it a dislocating experience I found it kind of alienating I found them increasingly frightening they're kind of like tyrannosaurs I'm fascinated by tyrannosaurs but I wouldn't want one as a pet and so I felt myself you know more and more over the past 20 years that I'm absolutely culturally Christian Um, that's been the process of discovery and that's what this this book really is is an attempt you know i'm trying to elucidate it for myself as much as 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 for anyone else whether that means that i you know the spark of 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 belief is is lit back is is a different matter i guess i would you know i would like to be able to believe there are times where i i feel that i can believe this um kind of easter or christmas or whatever but you know dinosaurs how do they fit in? It always been a problem for me, kind of, you know, since I was a very young child. Uh, and I remember I, I went to Sunday school and there was an illustrated Bible. And on the very first page, it had Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with, you know, lions and snakes and cockatoos and a brachiosaur. And I remember asking the Sunday school teacher saying, you know, how come there's humans and dinosaurs because they never coexisted and and she didn't really seem to to have an answer to that and I've always had a slight slight problem with that ever since so I I think that I'm probably representative of how quite a lot of people in this country I'm sure you are that Mm. I I think people are more respectful uh, and admiring of the overtly Christian inheritance um, than perhaps Richard Dawkins might want them to be and I think that Richard Dawkins in himself is an incredibly Protestant figure I think he could only emerge from 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 from, from a Protestant traditions mm. but I think also that they they e- either regard the, the the church and Christianity as something that's that's kind of history and and and, and wholly relevant to them or they kind of feel a, a, an inability to to kind of make any kind of leap of faith and so there's a, a slightly confused mildly agnostic mildly wistful feeling that um i'm certainly feel i i to a degree embody myself but i you know i absolutely feel that that the idea of of pilgrimage is is always been fundamental to 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 the 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 metaphors of christianity from the very beginning the idea that you go on journeys paul goes on journeys augustine describes the 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 church as a pilgrim going through the world Uh, and to that extent I, I found reading, immersing myself deeply in this incredibly rich um, inheritance of, of, of Christian literature and spirituality, that it has kind of sharpened the sense that I have that I am perhaps on a kind of pilgrimage and I don't know whether I will, you know, where I'm going and whether I'll get there, but who knows. Well, Tom, thank you so much for sharing that journey with us. Really fascinating to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.